I want to take as my text this morning that reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1164. Philippians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 21, which I'd like us to look at again. Philippians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 21. The Apostle Paul is in prison. This is his first major imprisonment. Uh, he was in prison in, uh, in Caesarea, but this is, this is serious. Now he's waiting uh, for a hearing before the emperor to whom he appealed when he was in Caesarea because he didn't think he was getting a fair trial there. He's under house arrest. He mentions in the letter to the Philippians that he's chained. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And he writes this incredible letter, which talks more about joy than anything he ever wrote, or at least anything that we still have that he wrote. But notice again, verse 21. For to me, Paul says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And yet, which I shall choose, what between life and death, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ, because I'll be coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened or fearful in anything by those who oppose you. Indeed, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and both come from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same kind of conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And notice that verse 21 again. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This morning I want to talk about the believer's perspective on life and death. The believer's perspective on life and death. In fact, I'd like to do so by drawing your attention to three things as they appear in our text. The first is what the believer's perspective on life and death is, simply put. Secondly, what the believer's perspective on life and death looks like when put into practice. And finally, what the believer's perspective on life and death looks like when experienced together with other believers. Did you get all of those three? Don't worry about it. 
I'm going to repeat them. <laughs> Firstly then, number one, what the believer's perspective on life and death is, simply put, in fact, that's contained again in verse 21. Notice again. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That last one seems a bit of a challenge, but let's look at them both. Indeed, Paul says there's two things. And the first is that for the believer to live is Christ, or as the New Living Translation puts it, and puts it well, for me to live means living for Christ. Indeed, a true believer doesn't live for self. A follower of the, of the Messiah, who's Lord and the believer, his disciple. A true believer doesn't live ultimately for self. Rather, a true believer, a true disciple lives for Christ. This is a distinguishing mark. If you like sine qua non, without which it doesn't even exist. Indeed, um, for the true believer, Christ is his or her, if you like, a raison d'etre. The purpose for living. And so Christ uh, is the, the reason uh, for everything. So that all of life is related and measured by the quality of his or her relationship with Jesus Christ. I've always appreciated what A.W. Tozer wrote because one might think that this is some, oh, this is great. Um, uh, I don't know if I can make that kind of commitment or make that kind of sacrifice. But this is what Tozer said. Put Christ in his rightful place and a thousand problems are solved at once. <laughs> I've said it before. My problem is not following him. My problem is when I don't. I was designed as you were to follow him. And when we do, and we make him first, and he's, he is, as we sing in the prayer, right? Be thou my vision. Then everything falls into place. And so for the believer to live is Christ, if you like. And then Paul says, and for the believer to die is gain. Really? <laughs> and this is so because for the believer to be absent from the body, which is what death is. In fact, the word, Greek word for death means separation. It's when my spirit rises and my body stays. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Which is what Paul says here in the context of our, our text and in other places, including 2 Corinthians 5 and 8. You know, to be, that's exactly what he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where do you suppose he got this idea? Well, it was Jesus who planted the idea. Do you remember that famous dialogue on the cross? And it's really interesting, you know, if you had a harmony of the Gospels to see all that's going on at the crucifixion in the Gospel of John and Luke and Matthew and Mark. And in Luke's Gospel, something is recorded that isn't recorded in the other Gospels. You're very familiar with it, I think. That dialogue between Jesus and one of the thieves that was dying next to him on the cross. And the sea thief said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. They're both dying. They'll both be dead by sunset. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me. 
in paradise. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so for the believer, death is gain. <laughs> I think it was Steve, Steve Jobs that said that uh, was talking about death. Or is that uh, Woody Allen, you know, said, uh, uh, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and Steve Jobs said something. He said, uh, even people who believe in heaven don't want to die to get there. But it's gain nonetheless. And so that's the first thing, what uh, the believer's perspective on life and death is simply put. Secondly, we have what the believer's perspective on life and death looks like when put into practice. Is it just a theory or is it a thing to be done? In fact, uh, we do a lot of African Bible study around here. We just did it yesterday morning with the men. We have our book that we've been reading, and then we look at various different excerpts from the book, and we just explain it. It's, it's very exciting. Um, Metaxas's uh, Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness. But we always have Bible study, some text that's related to what we were been reading. And so we read it through once, and everybody... Uh, finds a word or phrase, and then we read it again, and then we go back and say, so what was your word or phrase? And we have some discussion and say, well, this is what that, why that stuck out to me. And then the la we read it again, and then the last thing we ask, and we ask, and so what is God telling you to do? So that it's not just a discussion about, well, wasn't that interesting? What is God telling you to do as you reflect on this? So what the believer's perspective on life and death looks like when put into practice. Indeed, notice again, verses 22 through 26. For, for, for excuse me, verse 22. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that will mean fruitful labor for me. More ministry is what he's talking about. And yet, uh, and, and yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. <laughs> I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with the Lord, to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. So that in, in me you may have ample cause to glorify Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so Paul says that even uh, though for the believer, death and being present with Christ in heaven is far better than life itself, to live on in this life allows us the opportunity to, con to continue serving others for the sake of Christ. As Paul says, verse 22, and if I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, a fruitful labor, building up other believers in the church. Yet he says, I, 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 yet which I shall choose between life and death, I, I can't tell. You can see he's, he's, he's um, torn. <laughs> he says, I'm hard-pressed, or as in the New Living Translation, I'm torn between these two desires. And so, verse 22, if I, if I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which I shall choose, I, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh, that is to keep on living here, is more necessary on your account. Is it, that to him is a major consideration. Verse 25, and convinced of this, this is sort of interesting because he hasn't, even, he hasn't even gone to trial yet. But he's convinced as to how it's going to turn out. The Spirit of God, I suppose, speaking to his heart. I'm convinced of this and I know that I will remain. I'll go to trial and it won't end in my death and I will eventually be released, is what he is saying. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. That is, for your growth. You're maturing in the faith and your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify Christ. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for the ministry of Paul. He, he came back and he's been teaching us and helping us more so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so even though for the believer, the death being uh, and being present with Christ in, in heaven is, is far better than even life itself, to live on in this life allows us the opportunity to continue serving others for Christ's sake. And that's our calling as believers. It's not just about Paul. It's about all of us. By the way, I need you to encourage me. In fact, uh, when I'm not seeing it the way I should and the truth of the gospel is not, uh, is not affecting me the way that it should, I need you to say, where's your faith, Scott? Or when I'm hurting, I need you to say, well, let's just pray about it and just let's leave it with God. It's not a one-way street. It's very mutual. Just like we're all members of, of, of a body. And the hands serve the feet, and the feet serve the hands, and the mouth, and the whole body works together in order for the whole body to be healthy. And one, when one part is not working, what do you have? You have an unhealthy body. Rick Warren, in his famous book, The Purpose Driven Life, he wrote this. He said, over 50 times in the New Testament, the phrase, one another, is used. He says, indeed, as believers, we're commanded to love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, greet one another, serve one another, teach one another, honor one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, and be devoted to one another. And so this is what God, he says, this is what God expects us to be doing together and with others in the church. And so that's the second thing. What the believer's perspective on life and death looks like when put into practice. Finally, what we have, and this is a little bit of an expansion on what we've been saying, and that is what the believer's perspective on life and death looks like when experienced together with other believers. When experienced together with other believers. Notice, beginning at verse 27. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. He's talking to the group. With one mind, there's many of you, but you have one spirit and one mind, striving side by side each other for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything, by your opponents. Indeed, you're not being frightened, and it is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but also a clear sign of your salvation, and both of them, destruction and salvation, come from God. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for Christ's sake, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same kind of suffering or conflict that you once saw in me. And now here, <laughs> that I still have. And so as we've been saying, as Paul says here, the, the Christian life is not a, a, a thing that we do alone. It's a thing that we do in community. In fact, if you're living the Christian life all by yourself in isolation, I'm, well, you might get the wrong impression that you're real good at it. <laughs> get around some other people whose, whose blood runs red and who is, are as imperfect as you, uh, and you'll find out whether you're good at it or not. Christian life is not a thing, a thing done apart, but in community with other believers. And so Paul says, uh, and so let your manner of life and that's what we're talking about. Our perspective on life. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In fact, the word worthy here is oxios. In the Greek, it means equal. It oftentimes, the, 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 the word was used to describe an, uh, an uh, even uh, scale. In ancient times, you know, if you were buying something, you would uh, put what you were buying in one dish on the scale, and then you would put the, what you were using to barter on the other side, and then when the scale was even, then you were even. And that's the word here. So what he's saying is, let your life be equivalent to, or equal to the truth that the gospel tells. And be on display in your life, not only in words, but in your actions. So that somebody could say, after you share with them what the gospel says, that they could say, well, well that makes sense because that's how you live. <laughs> Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, and then he says this, whether I, come, whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I want to hear something. So that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing, that you're doing what I'm saying. That you're standing firm, which is, by the way, the very opposite of wavering and giving up. 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. There's many of you, but you're one in spirit. And with one mind that is in unity of faith and unity of purpose. Striving, he says, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Side by side, of course, what? I mean, what's the point of that? If you like, I think he's describing a team activity. <laughs> to do it together. As Tertullian wrote in the third century, no Christian is a Christian alone. And striving is a very interesting, it literally is a, a word, a, a military term. It means to be engaged in battle. Striving indicates that this is no casual, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't kind of activity. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That is, living the gospel and sharing it. And so the Christian life is a thing done in community with other believers. And then Paul says that suffering, even unto death, is no obstacle to living a victorious Christian life. <laughs> well, I'd live for him if things weren't so bad. That's, that's, that's when you really need to be living for him. And that's when he can give you grace to do what you thought you never could. And then all of a sudden, wow, and a friend or people that you know will say, wow, what's gotten into you? I mean, in, in the past, this would have just destroyed you. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus, as Jesus said to Paul, and my grace is perfected in your weakness. And all of that is on display when you suffer. And so Paul says that suffering, even unto death, is no obstacle to the living of a victorious Christian life. In fact, Paul says that suffering is part of our calling as believers. Notice verse 28, not frightened, not frightened in anything by your opponents. How often is at the end of your fear another person? Nine times out of ten? This is a very interesting expression. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Indeed, don't be afraid of those who find your commitment to Christ off-putting and then perhaps as a result mistreat you in some way for it. In fact, Paul says, verse 28, your fearlessness is a clear sign to them, to those who put you in that situation. It's a clear sign to them of your destruction, of their destruction, that, that you're not rattled. <laughs> Because God is in you, and His promises are, are animating your life. I will never leave you nor forsake you, God says. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Or as the psalmist said, and so, if God is my fortress and my rock, whom, of whom then shall I be afraid? 
Your fearlessness is a clear sign to them of their destruction and also a clear sign of your salvation. And both, both their destruction and your salvation are from God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you. And this is really interesting. It has been granted unto you. The, the word, it really, the root of the word is the word grace. It means a gift, if you like. It has been gifted to you by God that for Christ's sake you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The believing is a gift and the suffering is a gift. It's exactly what it says. For it has been granted to you that for Christ's sake you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same kind of conflict that you saw I had. In Philippi, remember Philippi? There was no synagogue there. They went down to the river and Lydia was there. There was a prayer meeting and so on and so forth. And then Paul and Silas were arrested. And they were beaten with rods, and they were put in the prison, and then the, the prison uh, guard, the, uh, the head of the prison, put their feet in the stocks, which is a form of torture. So they sit on their bottoms with their feet spread out on these, these stocks, and, do, and it, it, until all of that just sets in. Can you imagine the cramps and the pain? And then what does it say? And at midnight, Silas and Paul sang hymns to God, and the whole prison listened. Of course they did. But that's what he's referring to, his suffering in Philippi. Engage you, engaged in the same kind of conflict that you saw I had when I was with you in Philippi, and now you hear that I'm having in Rome. Richard Wormbrand, the late founder of the Voice of the Martyrs ministry here in the United States, was a a Jew, and, and he became a Christian, uh, and a, a, a Lutheran pastor, you know, some of you know about him. Uh, he was a pastor when the Nazis were in Romania, and then he was a pastor when the communists came. In fact, he jokingly said, well, the, the Nazis, who weren't as bad as the communists, they got us warmed up, so it wasn't so bad when the communists came. But he spent 14 years in Romanian prisons, first three years, and they let him out and they said, now Wormbrand, Pastor Wormbrand, you keep your mouth shut about Jesus and, and criticizing us because we don't believe in God and so on. Well, of course, he wasn't quiet and so they arrested him and he went back for another 11 years. But uh, a quote from the magazine I read some time ago. He says this about him and his friends in the Romanian prison. He said, a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching the gospel in the prison, which of course was strictly forbidden. So we accepted the jailer's terms, and it was a deal, he said. Notice the, the humor. In fact, this is a common characteristic, by the way, of the persecuted church. They do something that we don't always do. They laugh. So we accepted the jailer's terms, and it was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching, and they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. 
Later he would tell the story as it's recorded in his book, Tortured for Christ, and it was a, a, an incident that was uh, portrayed in the film called Tortured for Christ that came out a few years ago. But he was in the cell with other believers and they were, one in particular was, was proclaiming and teaching and the guard came around and saw the man doing this and of course it was strictly forbidden so he removed the man and brought him outside of the cell and beat him with a heavy wooden stick and then threw him back into the cell. And when he recomposed himself, he sat back down with the group and he said, now gentlemen, where was I? <laughs> That's the power of Christ in me. And where does it all come from? Is it Pauline? Was it, was it uh, just Paul? He was a masochist. No, it comes from Christ, who suffered more than anyone. The last of the Beatitudes, a Beatitude means a state of blessedness. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And the last Beatitude in Matthew 5, at the end of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and beginning at verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and hold you in contempt and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil lies against you falsely on my account. <laughs> blessed are you. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. <laughs> well, I could never rejoice under those circumstances. That's right, you can't. But if God's in you, you can. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what do you think? Does all of this describe your perspective on life and death? <laughs> and if your perspective on life and death is not the perspective that comes from Christ and his apostles, from where does your perspective come? The believer's perspective on life and death. Amen? I suppose, Lord, it seems strange, you know, because, uh, because it is. It is strange, Lord. What we're describing here is strange. I mean, where do, you ever, where do we ever see it? Certainly in our culture where the, the dominant philosophy is consumerism and we believe the more we have, the happier we'll be. <laughs> we couldn't possibly imagine having less. Well, certainly we couldn't imagine dying in joy or, or, or suffering 
And, and then while we're suffering because, and, and because we're doing what's good and right, to rejoice and be exceeding glad, who does that, Lord? Well, a precious few. And many of them are living in places that uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't believe they're, they're living or under such conditions, even if it was described to us. The question is, I suppose, Lord, is us, where, where will we be in all of this? And you're calling us to the believer's perspective that we might be able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And whatever comes my way, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. May that be my testimony, Lord. May that be our testimony. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.